Father, we ask that you would help us this summer to love the Psalms, that our studies in this book would move our hearts to just a deeper affection for you and for your word. We pray that tonight you would help us to understand and believe and apply Psalm 1, that we might not be like the wicked, but instead like this blessed man who is rooted in your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, friends, it is a good thing for the people of God to gather again on a Sunday evening and be back in the word. And so please do take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Psalm chapter 1. So this summer, Lord willing, we're going to do a little mini-series in the Psalms. Uh, If you've ever read and studied the Psalms, then you will know uh, how, like all of the Bible, certainly is breathed out by God and is thus living and active. But there's just this unique way, a special way, in which the Psalms speak to the hearts of believers. A a way in which uh, this genre of poetry, this uh, medium of songs just describes our emotions and really stirs up our affections. John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of the soul. Uh, There is not, he says, there is not uh, an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Basically, the Psalms just capture our emotions in a unique way, and I think he's right. Uh, Maybe you can recall from personal experience how God has used the Psalms Uh, to minister to your soul, uh, maybe in seasons of sorrow or or trial or discouragement or perhaps seasons of uh, rejoicing and a special closeness to God. And so my hope is that this Summer Sunday series uh, in the Psalms will just be encouraging uh, to all of us uh, that regardless of what season of life the Lord has us in, uh, our love for him will grow as a result of our time in the Psalms. And so let's get started. What I want to do tonight is I want to kind of just set the stage by studying together uh, the very first psalm, Psalm chapter 1, which acts as a kind of intro to the rest of the book. Uh, Why do I say that? Well, first, Psalm 1 is going to contrast two kinds of people, right? You've got God's people and not God's people, the righteous and the wicked. And that's a theme that's going to carry throughout the entire book. Uh, How do God's people, the righteous— live in a fallen world of wickedness. And by the way, when you see the word uh, the righteous in the Psalms, uh, don't just think of God's perfect righteousness uh, because then the Psalms that describe the righteous are describing nobody except for Jesus. Uh, Think of God's people who genuinely seek him and pursue after him as opposed to the wicked. Second, Psalm 1 calls on God's people to meditate on his word, right, which of course includes the rest of the book of Psalms. And so Psalm 1 introduces us both to uh, what is going to be in the Psalms and also how we are to read the Psalms. So look now at Psalm 1. Uh, Before we get into the text, though, we can just look at that very first word, that word, blessed. Uh, Blessed is just not really a a term that our society uses very often. Maybe it's like a meaningless hashtag, right? Like, got the last donut before they ran out, hashtag blessed. 
the word really just means happy, right? The word just really means uh, joyful. The blessed man of Psalm 1, he is happy. He is joyful. And if you've ever read the Gospels, if you know about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you know that he emphasizes the exact same idea there. And I'm going to spare you the details, but uh, the way the Hebrew is constructed here in Psalm chapter 1, uh, it is describing like, a, like an intensified, like multiplied blessing. And so we might uh, more literally, woodenly translate this like abundantly blessed or really, really blessed. And so this is not like when you've got one cookie left for the family to share and it's like, all right, Paxton, small bite, just, just a small, no, small bite. Okay, LS, small bite, small bite. Right, where you're just being stingy because there's just not enough to go around. No, this is like abundant, like all you can eat. My cup is overflowing kind of blessing. All people, Christian or not, want this kind of blessing, just to be happy and joyful and content and satisfied abundantly. You don't believe me? Go on Amazon. Uh, just look at how many self-help, self-esteem, self-improvement books you can find. Uh, at the end of the day, right, all of those books are just ways in which people are seeking some kind of uh, blessedness. Uh, but the world can only offer, like, circumstantial and, and temporary and fleeting blessedness. In contrast, the blessedness in this psalm, the blessedness for God's people, well, because it's rooted in an eternal God and his eternal word, it is an eternally abundant blessedness. It is an eternally abundant joy. And so this eternal, abundant, all-abiding blessedness, that's what every Christian is after. Like, I can't imagine there's any believer in this room right now who doesn't want to be this blessed man from Psalm chapter 1. And so what we're about to look at here in the psalm is, is, is relevant. Uh, it's applicable. I would even say it's urgent uh, because it's not just that you want to be this blessed man. It's that you need to be this blessed man. So what does this psalm tell us about this blessed man? I have four points for you. I'm going to start with point number one. The blessed man rejects God's enemies. Rejects God's enemies Remember that the Psalms as a genre, right, this is poetry, but Hebrew poetry, a little bit different from uh, what we might think of in English poetry. In English poetry, it is typically words, right, that are rhymed. Uh, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. There you go. This part did their English lit. Okay. Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Okay. Hebrew poetry, a little bit different, right? It's not so much words that are being rhymed. It's ideas that are being rhymed. Uh, let me give you an example. Psalm 19, uh, verse 1, right? The heavens, uh, you can't see it because, oh, boom, there it is. The heavens, right, and the sky above, uh, that's parallel ideas. And then declaring the glory of God and proclaiming his handiwork, those are parallel ideas. And then if we look at verse 2, you will see day to day, night to night. Those are being juxtaposed as ideas, uh, but pours out speech and reveals knowledge. Again, that is a repetition, a synonymous ideas that are being rhymed together. And so with that in mind, look at Psalm 1 verse 1 in your Bibles. A threefold rhyming is what we find here. Uh, three ways in which the blessed man rejects God's enemies. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
But there's a little bit more going on here than just one idea being synonymously repeated three times. Because you look at the sequence there, there is a progression. There's an amplification going on in verse 1 where walking progresses to standing, which progresses to sitting. And the counsel of the wicked is amplified to the way of sinners, which is then amplified to the seat of scoffers. And so it starts with a person just taking counsel, seemingly innocently enough, just kind of seeking advice, but in doing so, perhaps beginning to prescribe to the worldview of the wicked. But then that progresses to the person not only walking in that counsel, but now standing in the way of sinners. And that's not the most helpful translation for us because when we think of standing in the way of something, we think of like obstructing it, right? And so standing in the way of sinners, like blocking them, that sounds like a good thing. Uh, But this is referring to standing with sinners, like identifying in their way. But then that progresses to the person not only identifying in their way, but now sitting in the seat of scoffers. Like now you're really one of them. Right Now you belong. We might say that you have a seat at the table. And so this is your identity. This is, you are now one of those scoffers that is giving wicked advice, that is inviting others to reject God with you. So you see the progression uh, following their advice at the level of your thoughts. That's like level one. That quickly becomes level two, which is running with the crowd. Right? That's at the level of your actions. And then that becomes level three, uh, being one of their very own, like at the level of your identity. This is now who you are. The wicked, they're ensnared in all of that, like at all three levels. But the blessed man The blessed man is aware of that progression, that it often starts with a little bit of compromise, just a a little capitulation, a little bit of counsel, and how quickly that can lead to the path of death. And so he steers clear from the very beginning, from the very start. He is aware that the company that we keep has a tremendous impact, influence on our spiritual lives. He understands principles like Proverbs 13.20, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Uh, he knows 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three. It hasn't even written yet. Uh, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts or ruins good morals. And you know why Paul says do not be deceived? It's because we're easily deceived. And nobody says, like, do not be deceived. Eating McDonald's every day is really bad for your health. Because no one's deceived about that. We all know that. But the company we keep, oh, it's really easy for us to be deceived. For us to think that we're having a greater influence on them than they're having on us. For us to think that we're strong enough in our convictions that we would never compromise with them. For us to think that our rock-solid worldview, oh, that, that could never actually be impacted by theirs. Obviously, I'm not saying, the psalm is not saying, the Bible is not saying that we shouldn't have any contact at all with unbelievers. As a matter of fact, Christ has given you a mission to share the gospel with the lost. But friends, we know there is a big difference between a relationship centered on evangelism and a friendship with the world. Right? The former can bring life to others. The latter 
is going to kill you. Point number one, the blessed man rejects God's enemies. Which brings us then to point number two, the blessed man rejoices in God's word. Verse two, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And did you notice the subtle thing that the writer did there in verse two? Because in verse one, he gives us a threefold negative, blessed is the man who doesn't do this action, doesn't do this action, and doesn't do this action. Remember that this is poetry, so what are we expecting here in verse two? We're expecting, blessed is the man who does do this action, and does do this action, and does do this action. But you notice verse two is not about the blessed man's action as much as it's about his thought life. What does the blessed man delight in? Like, what are the deepest affections of his soul? What does the blessed man think about? Like, what consumes his mind day and night? The answer to both of those questions is God's law, right? the law of the Lord. Now, when we see that word law, we typically think of commandments and, and rules, right? Like a catalog of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. Uh, but here the word refers more broadly, more generally to the word of God as a whole. Uh, it's, the, it's the Torah of Yahweh uh, that includes commandments, uh, that includes rules, but it also includes all other kinds of wisdom and history and teaching and, and instruction. So the blessed man's thoughts are fixed on God's word. And so you think back to those three levels that we talked about in verse one. Right? So it's at level one, like at the entry level, the level of counsel and influence that the righteous person departs from the wicked person. Rather than being influenced by sinners and their way, the righteous man is influenced, uh, his mind is filled with God's word, God's path, and God's way. Like, we're not even going to get to level two, walking in the way. Uh, We're not even going to go near level three, sitting at the table. We're just going to stop this right at the beginning, redirect it right at the outset, right, at level one, at the level of the thought life. As you can think of this as the Psalms equivalent of Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world. That's basically Psalm 1-1. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that is Psalm 1-2. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to be the blessed man, if we're going to successfully reject God's enemies, then our minds must be grounded in God's word. And we've got to be meditating on God's word day and night. Now, that does not mean that every single waking thought is Bible, 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 Bible. But you get the idea, right? The Word of God, it just uh, permeates and saturates your mind. It's never far from you. And so whether it's what you read that morning, or maybe a verse that you memorized, a sermon that you heard recently, just a gospel song that you've been humming, a recent conversation about the Word that you had with your friend, that is what dominates your thought life. A good test of this, uh, what do you think about when you have nothing to think about? What is it that fills the little gaps in your day? Uh, Where does your mind go during downtime? I think those questions are very telling. We don't have to stop there because it's not just that the blessed man is constantly thinking about God's word. It's that he delights in God's word. I think that's a really important thing to understand because unless we delight in God's word, it's going to be awfully hard for us to meditate on it day and night. 
If you told me to meditate on stamp collecting, I have a lot of willpower, uh, just by sheer willpower and grit, I think I could get my mind to focus on stamp collecting, the glories of stamp collecting, I don't know, like three minutes. But then because I have no delight in stamp collecting, I don't, I don't know anything about stamp collecting, it brings me no joy, other things that do delight me will draw my mind away inevitably, I'm going to give up. I will not meditate on stamp collecting night and day because I have no delight in stamp collecting. Well, that close relationship between love, love for God's word, and meditation on God's word, we see that all over the Bible, including the Psalms. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. I love your law. And what's the result of that? It is my meditation all the day. And so, brothers and sisters, if you want to be the blessed man of Psalm 1, which you do, you need to constantly be meditating on God's word. And that goes hand in hand with a love for God's word. And so, uh, dear child of God, do you love God's word? Now, I'm not saying that on days that you don't feel a love for God's word, that you therefore don't have to meditate on God's word. Now, I think on those days, you've got to wrestle with God's word. Like Jacob, I will not let you go unless you bless me. While your love for God's word will drive you to meditate on it, it also does go the other way, right? Where your meditation will cause you to love God's word more because God's word is lovely. You meditate on it, you will love it more. But also consider this, if there's never any love for God's word, perhaps evidenced by a completely godless thought life? Well, friends, that's a major red flag. Uh, You might not be this blessed man at all. You might be the wicked of verse 1. Because point number 2, the blessed man rejoices in God's word. What is the product of rejoicing in God's word? Well, the psalmist gives us a nice word picture there in verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, I don't know the, like the first thing about botany or horticulture or anything like that, uh, but even I know that trees need water to survive, to grow, to flourish, And so this blessed man, the word picture here is he is a tree that is planted by this continual constant stream of water flowing by its roots. And so it always has access to nourishment and vitality and life. Even when the rains dry up, even when difficult seasons come, that tree still has sustenance. And so it yields fruit. It doesn't wither. It prospers. It's the same imagery that the kids sang about earlier, which itself comes from Psalm 46, 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And so you see that connection in both Psalms between the stream, which is God's word, and the believer's delight, the believer's joy, his gladness. Point number two, the blessed man rejoices in God's word. Which brings us to point number three. Uh, The blessed man rises in God's judgment. 
But interestingly, the psalmist doesn't make this point uh, by focusing on the fate of the blessed man as much as he does by focusing on the fate of the wicked. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Back then, you would harvest wheat. Uh, You would bring it to the threshing floor, and then you'd have the oxen tread it. And the result is this kind of mixture of grain, which is what you want, and then the chaff, which you don't want. Uh, And so what you would do is you would take that mixture of grain and chaff, and you would pick it up, and you would throw it into a strong wind. And the lighter chaff would kind of blow everywhere, and the heavier grain would fall to the ground. And you do that enough times, you are left with the grain that you want, and the chaff that you don't is driven away by the wind. That's a picture of judgment. And because in this life, the chaff and the wheat, they're like all mixed together, right? In workplaces, in schools, in families, uh, in churches, right? You've got a mix of God's people and not God's people, right? The righteous, the wicked, the grain, and the chaff. And thinking about prosperity in this life, whatever measure you want to use, health or wealth or any other temporal measure of blessedness, well, the chaff and the wheat just kind of all get mixed together. Uh, Sometimes the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer in this life. Uh, Sometimes it's the other way around. And that's where the prosperity gospel gets it so wrong because they're so overly focused on the outcomes in the here and now. But friends, in the judgment, everything is made clear. Uh, The righteous... In all that he does, he prospers, uh, culminating in his vindication, uh, his acceptance in the judgment. But the wicked are not so. The wicked, verse 5, they will not stand in the judgment. And that imagery brings us right back to verse 1, doesn't it? Because the righteous man is warned, verse 1, not to stand in the way of sinners, not to stand with sinners as they stand, because ultimately in the judgment, they're not going to be standing. And the righteous man is warned not to belong to the table of sinners because in the judgment, it's the sinners who are not going to belong in the congregation of the righteous. So the question for every professing believer is, do you want to be standing, belonging now when it doesn't matter? Or do you want to be standing and belonging at the judgment when it does? Verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Perish, uh, as in eternally perish in hell, where they are going to pay for every one of the sins that they've committed against the holy God. So friends, I, I hope you see the righteous and the wicked, right? The way this psalm just categorizes to the people into two and only two categories. Uh, This is not like chocolate or vanilla. This is not like Mets or Yankees. This is not like beef or chicken. Correct answer is chocolate, Mets, beef. Uh, This is a matter of eternal consequence, right? This is a matter of life and death. Point number three, the blessed man will rise in God's judgment, and it's clear from this contrast in the psalm between the righteous and the wicked that the wicked are not going to stand in the judgment. The blessed man, that man, the righteous man, will. But now we've got to ask another question, which is how can this be? Like, it makes sense that the wicked will not stand in the judgment, 
But how can it be that the righteous will? Because even those of us who would fall into the category of the righteous, right, God's people, uh, we know that we fall very, very short. For example, we know our own thought life. We know we often don't meditate on God's word. We often neglect this stream of water that we're planted by. We're all too often drawn, uh, enticed into compromise, sin, by the world and by the wicked. And the Psalms are clear that God is perfectly holy. Holy and awesome is his name, Psalm 111.9. God is a righteous judge, Psalm 7.11. And so he must judge, he must punish every sin. God's not grading on a curve. He's not grading on the sliding scale. And so it's like, well, you mostly keep away from sinners and uh, you don't sin as much as other people do. And you really do try to obey God's word. And you're trying to meditate. I see that you're trying to meditate And so you're going to be able to stand in the judgment. No, God demands perfection in holiness because God himself is perfection in holiness. So how can anyone, even those who have sought to follow God, how can we who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God stand in the judgment? That's the exact question that's asked in Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Oh Lord, who could stand? That leads us to point number four. The blessed man finds refuge in God's son. The blessed man rejects God's enemies. The blessed man rejoices in God's word. The blessed man rises in God's judgment. And now the blessed man finds refuge in God's son. You say, well, where do you see that in Psalm 1? Well, I don't see it in Psalm 1, but I do see it in Psalm 2. That's significant because of how closely related, how closely connected Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are. Now, all of Scripture is connected in like this general sense, right? Jesus said the Scriptures cannot be broken, and so uh, it's all ultimately written by one author, the Holy Spirit. And so it could be said about any two chapters in the Bible that, yeah, they're, they're connected. But Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 They're like especially connected. They're as closely connected as any two chapters in the Psalter. Because both Psalms have this clear contrast between righteousness and wickedness. In Psalm 1, it's the blessed man who chooses the paths of the righteous as opposed to the paths of the wicked. And in Psalm 2, it's the nations. Right? The wicked kings of the earth and the rulers, they choose to go against the Lord and his anointed. They choose the paths of wickedness. So you can think of Psalm 1 as being like on the small picture, like individual level. And then Psalm 2 is on the big picture, kind of global, historical level. Both Psalms give pictures of the judgment. Psalm 1, the chaff are being driven away. Psalm 2, look at verse 9. They're being dashed into pieces like a potter's vessel. But also there's really close grammatical connections. You look at how Psalm 1 begins, right? Blessed is the man. What does Psalm 2 end? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, The smart people call that an inclusio, right? It's just a word sandwich, right? Blessed in the beginning, blessed in the end. And you remember that word meditate, Central to the idea of Psalm 1, on his law, he meditates day and night. 
That same exact word appears in Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The peoples meditate in vain. And so the righteous are meditating on God's law. The wicked are meditating on how to overthrow God's law. The righteous view God's law as their delight. That's Psalm 1. The wicked view God's law, look at Psalm 2, 3, as bonds, as cords that are oppressive, that need to be burst and cast away. One more, let's look at how Psalm 1 ends. The way of the wicked will perish. We'll now look at Psalm 2.12, lest you perish in the way. The connection between these two psalms is so close. Uh, Some manuscripts even have these two psalms together as one psalm. Now, I'm not going to read Psalm 2 right now. You can do that on your own. But basically, as the wicked, as these unbelieving nations, as they rage and they plot, as they meditate on how to overthrow God and reject God's rule, They're going to rebel against God and his Messiah. God laughs. Not sweating. It doesn't worry him. Shaken in any way. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And that king referring, of course, to Jesus. You are my son. He's going to be enthroned forever. He's going to break the rebels with a rod of iron and judgment Just like God's judgment upon the wicked is promised in Psalm 1, so it is promised in Psalm 2. But now look at the last three verses of Psalm 2. This psalm ends with a call to repentance, an offer of mercy to the wicked. They're warned, be wise. Kiss the Son. Come to the Son in humble submission because he offers peace and he offers reconciliation to all who would come to him for refuge. So back to our original question, how can anyone stand in the judgment? The answer is by finding refuge in God's Son, Jesus Christ. What the psalmists look forward to, they saw it only through types and shadows and promises. What we look back on, we see clearly that the refuge that comes through Jesus, well, it's because of what he did for us on the cross through his death and his resurrection. You see, Jesus would come to earth as God incarnate, both fully God and fully man, and he would be this blessed man from Psalm 1. The only person in human history who has ever lived out this psalm perfectly, never going in the way of sinners, always delighting in the law of the Lord. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Always abiding perfectly in the Father and yielding every single fruit perfectly in its season. But this Jesus would die on the cross as he would take upon himself all of the sins of all who would believe in him. And not only that, but he imputed to us his perfect righteous record as this blessed Psalm 1 man. And then, of course, he would rise again three days later to show that his payment for sin was accepted, that we now really are truly perfect in God's sight, forgiven of all of our sin, made into children of God, that we might stand in the judgment accepted in Christ. That's the refuge. That's the only refuge for God's people. Point number four, the blessed man finds refuge in God's Son. 
And so you see how Psalm 1, it, it looks both backwards and forwards. It looks backwards. Right? Just think about this imagery. You've got a tree, and it's planted by streams of water. That takes us right back to the Garden of Eden. Well, that blessed man, well, friends, who was more blessed than Adam? But rather than delighting in God's word, what does Adam do? What do Adam and Eve do? They walk in the counsel of the wicked. They listen to the serpent. You really want to be blessed? I'll show you what it means to be happy. And so they stood in the way of sinners and eventually took their seat with the scoffers. And as their offspring, as their progeny, so you and I have inherited that sin nature. And so we constantly find ourselves falling short of God's perfect standard. We constantly find ourselves falling short of this Psalm 1 man. But friends, the Psalm also looks forward, as does all of the Old Testament, to the Savior to come. And we see that so clearly in this partner psalm of Psalm chapter 2. God's Son, uh, the anointed, the Messiah, the perfect incarnation of this blessed man, the one who earned and secured God's favor for all of God's elect, the one who has spared us from the judgment to come, the one who allows us to, by his life and death and resurrection, stand in the judgment. Point number four, the blessed man finds refuge in God's Son. So let me, ta- let me say just two things in closing. Uh, first, if you are not a Christian, uh, I am not only glad that you are here, uh, but I'm also glad that our text for this evening was Psalm 1, because this psalm so clearly distinguishes, separates between the righteous and the wicked, right? God's people and not God's people. It's exactly what Jesus would say later in the Sermon on the Mount. There's only two paths. Uh, There's only two kinds of trees. There's only two kinds of foundation upon which you can build. Which means that if you are not in Christ, regardless of how nice and friendly of a person you are, regardless of how good other people might see you to be, you are heading down this path of destruction. You are this diseased tree that bears bad fruit. You are building your house on the sand. And Proverbs 1, you are the wicked man. And so I want you, even as we leave this place, to meditate particularly on verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 1. As it stands, you are going to be driven away like chaff. You will not be able to stand in the judgment. You will perish. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to find refuge in God's Son who stands to save all who would put their trust in him. I love that song that the children sang earlier. Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Where do you go? Come and drink these living waters. Jesus said, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Second, for the Christian, for the believer, just to be crystal clear here, God is not pleased with you because you read your Bibles or you meditate on his word. No, God is pleased with you because of what Jesus did on your behalf, because you have found your refuge in him and him alone. But 
this psalm. How the blessed man lives. Well, this is a call for every single believer to live in light of what God has done, rejecting God's enemies, delighting in God's law, planting your roots just deep in the streams of God's word. My prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit would use this psalm, use the preaching tonight to just really impress that on your hearts that you might be spurred on towards holiness. Father, we thank you for your word and how clear your word is about mankind. That there are the righteous and that there are the wicked. That there are the righteous who have found refuge in your son and that there are the wicked who have not. Father, we pray for all the lost in this room who are among us. Father, that you would save their souls, that they would find refuge in the son, in the Lord's anointed Father, we pray for those who are your people here. Father, we pray that we would find our delight in your word. Lord, as a result, that we would meditate on it day and night, that we might be found to be this blessed man who rejoices in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.